Welcome to this episode of Anti-Capitalist Radio, the podcast of anti-capitalist resistance. My name is Rowan Datham, and today I will be talking to Simon, he, him, about political questions of class in relation to Marxism. Sometimes Marxism is accused of having a too rigid understanding of class, as liberal sociologist Steve Bruce puts it, dividing everyone between two hostile camps. This is true only insofar as Marx understood the central revolutionary class division within capitalism. But in fact, he had a much more nuanced understanding of the various social layers, all of which was framed by a philosophy characterized as much by social relations and agency as Marx's more famed materialism. Marxism, far from dividing everyone into two simplistic camps, has a subtler understanding of the interactions of economy, consciousness, and social contradictions, which make up the complex tapestry of our societies and the understanding of which is a necessarily forever incomplete, but still vital undertaking. Let's start with an initial point. Aren't we all middle class today? Simon, how would you tackle that question? If anything, I'd say it's the opposite. The middle class is arguably shrinking and late-stage capitalism, which I think is probably what we're in now, given the extent of the climate crisis, is eroding the basis of the middle class. But I guess the whole discussion which has been going on throughout the 20th century and beyond is you know, the idea that the working class kind of existed in the 1800s, and it was all factory workers and people who worked at you know looms and all down the pit. And then as the 20th century went on, particularly after World War II, living conditions improved and people had more opportunities and started to buy white consumer goods like fridges and dishwashers and you know buying TVs and things and you know they could afford a car and people started getting mortgages and buying houses and therefore that idea of the working class was kind of replaced by a much bigger middle class but I think that's a very surface level shallow look at it because really although a lot of workers did have a better standard of living than their parents or their grandparents ultimately they remained workers better paid workers but still workers and then the reality, of course, is as, as capitalism went on in a lot of countries, even those gains began to be stripped away. And now you have a situation where in nearly every family, both parents have to work. There's lots of debt. You know, people can't afford things that maybe their parents could have afforded. Really, actually, the idea of the middle class is, is actually eroding even more rapidly. Uh, or particularly the idea that the working class has become middle class is now kind of snapping back because of the reality of what capitalism can and cannot provide. Yeah, I would I would concur with that. I would also say that this whole conception of the middle class that I guess is supplied to us by liberal sociology is itself quite a vague abstraction. You already mentioned the subject of worker remuneration, how rich they're getting you know, relative to the past and, and relative to different layers of the working class. And I think this whole issue of remuneration and, and salary as the main metric of what is the working class is a way of refocusing class society and, and how that's analyzed to a question of distribution rather than a question of production, which is where Marx roots the working class at its fundamental material core. So for Marx, the fundamental definition of a worker as somebody who has to sell their labor power in order to be able to socially reproduce is really seen at the level of their 
both their relation to the means of production, but also their lived experience in terms of that productive process and how that shapes their everyday consciousness. And this is a question that fundamentally this category of the middle class then obscures, and then it collides well-paid workers with people who own small businesses, who are petty bourgeois, and it does other kinds of things like that to collapse distinctions that Marxists would make because it has fundamentally different tasks to the task that Marxism has set itself. What do you think about sort of the way in which the, the, the middle class is an obscuring category in contemporary discourse? Well, I, I think it's good to go back to some of the original stuff around this, especially um, obviously Marx and what Marx and Engels wrote about. But I mean, in Capital, Marx talks about how there's really only three classes that he's kind of really talking about in the general sense. One is the capitalist class, then there's the working class, and then there's the landlord's class, as it were. And I think the good way of understanding this is is just to think about how, how humans live. Like, how do humans survive in the world? You know, you're, like, you're, you're, you're born into the world, and then you grow up, and how do you survive? So some people are born into lots of wealth and money, and they they quote unquote survive by being given loads of money or inheriting money or whatever, and then they can invest it in businesses and or they can start up businesses. So they they are capitalists who use money to make more money, and that obviously like that's all that capital is. It, it's it's money that you invest in factories or production or or vehicles or whatever people workers, and then at the end of the process you made more money. So there's a there's a section of society who live like that. There's a section of society who don't have that kind of wealth. And so all, like, all they've got is their ability to work. And obviously, that's the working class. Um, as you said, all they've got is their labour power. They're, some of them are very technically skilled and everyone's got the potential to be smart and to, you know, to you know, become quite uh, adept at any particular kind of work. But that's what the working class has to do. The working class is compelled to go out and work. And then there's the third class, which Marx talks about, which obviously is the landlord class, and they make money from uh, owning land or owning property or houses and then and then renting it out. So that's kind of like the rentier class. The middle class within that, of course, is generally understood, like, so use the, so use the phrase petty bourgeois. I think historically the middle class, uh, and also you can understand it using this today, it's it's people who, who usually own a bit of property, uh, i.e. a shop or, or something like that, that they can make some money out of. So for me, the petty bourgeoisie is the guy that owns the corner shop at the bottom of the road. The bourgeoisie is the Tesco's two minutes walk away. The bourgeoisie own the big bits of capital and, you know, that's their power and their wealth and their strength. But the, but the petty bourgeoisie are the kind of small contenders who are trying to carve out a space in the market. So they own a bit of something they can make money out. But of course, that means also that the peasantry are middle class if you want to think about it like that, because the thing about the peasants is they also owned a bit of land and they would work the land and they would, or, you know, they had a couple of cows or a goat or a sheep or something, and they would make money from from the, the handful of animals they owned and like there was a strip of land that they could farm and grow wheat. So the peasantry are also part of the middle class. But as you said, it's not based on wealth. And I think that's very important, which is that, you know, there are people who own shops who are actually quite poor because they don't make a, um, a lot of money from that shop. If, you, if you've got a corner shop and then a Tesco's opens 
up two minutes walk away, you're probably going to lose a lot of money because people just go to the Tesco's because it's cheaper and they've got a better range of goods. So you might own a shop or, you know, rent a shop, but then you're you're actually quite poor. You don't have a lot to live on. And your neighbour could be a um, engineer who is on 65, 70, 80, 100,000 pounds a year or something, you know, whatever, kind of working very technically skilled work and projects. And so I think that, I think that's the important thing. It's not about necessarily what you're earning from what you're doing. It's about how you're earning it. You know, bringing up the petty bourgeois in, in this context is very useful. And, and I think your point about their position actually being quite precarious is is really central to, I mean, certainly to Marx's analysis of the sort of more authoritarian forms of, of capitalism that can emerge from capitalist crisis. And we think about it in terms of fascist consciousness today and, and the potential for fascist political movements and Marx obviously wrote about Bonapartism, a kind of proto-fascism in, in many ways. And really what the problem is from the petty bourgeois perspective, and I always find that Ernest Bloch, the sort of great Marxist philosopher of hope, was really good at analysing petty bourgeois despair in, in many ways. He's, he's got some very fantastic passages of analysing it, is that they're fundamentally torn between the working class and the bourgeoisie in that neither really represents their interests, but those are the two social forces that can either preserve the world it is or reshape it. So the proletariat, the those who don't own, you know, so think of an amount of property are fundamental threat to petty bourgeois interests, but also predatory capitalists who can sweep them aside. You know, the, the small corner shop can easily be swept aside by the erection of a new Tesco's are also a threat. And they have no vision to counteract either of these threats, which is why their politics is so ungrounded and un- and unmoored. You know, you, you look at fascistic politics in, and Nazi politics, you know, thousand-year regimes, massive fabricated mythological histories, these massive heights of despair counteracted by by huge sort of giddying heights of hope and, and optimism that, that neither seem really grounded in any real reality that, that's likely to be enacted. I think this is politics and a, a, a social position that can be understood better through a Marxist class analysis. The interesting thing I think about the middle class also is that, as you said, because they don't really have an independent political existence. I mean, they vote for parties, you know, obviously, and there's like often middle class business forums, like small business organisations and so on. But as you said, they're, they're really caught between the wheels of the organised working class and big capital. They can't compete in the marketplace with big capital, uh, usually speaking. If you've got a small shop, workshop or something and you've and, and you've hired five people and you're probably having to pay them very low wages because you don't make a lot of money and then they and then those five people join a trade union and start putting in decent pay claims and you know you're in <laughs> you're in real trouble and like obviously there's lots of people who work for small businesses in countries like the UK and the USA and, and France and so on where they they only survive because they get away with paying such low wages. I mean, obviously, big capital does as well. I mean, it's the famous thing that Tesco's in 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 the UK. Most of their staff have to also apply for um, in work welfare and benefit payments because they're just paid so poorly. But obviously, the capitalists have an economy of scale they can work on. But 
the point about the middle class, which I think is very, very interesting, is that they often make up the leaders or the ideological backbone of a lot of movements. Like the middle classes uh, make up the backbone of kind of religious fanatic movements, you know, the Jesuits or kind of Islamic radical forces in parts of the Middle East. Uh, nationalist movements are often led by people from the middle classes. The socialist left often has a lot of people who originated in the middle classes and then were kind of won over to the workers' movement. But the same with bourgeoisie. I mean, the Conservative Party in Britain and the Republican Party in the US is not staffed really with actual bourgeois capitalists. They're too busy running business or or going and playing golf. What those parties are made up of is middle class people who are convinced that, you know, there's a career in politics for them and they can get into parliament and, and then represent the interests of that class of people. So I think that's a very interesting thing about it because, because as you said, the most classical example, really, of a mass middle class movement is the Nazi party in uh, Germany, obviously led by Hitler in the 1920s and 30s. And that, I think, is a very interesting point, because again, like as you said, it was kind of completely ridiculous, irrational, racist, nationalist, violent politics. It hated the organised left. The first people that were put into concentration camps were communists and social democrats and trade union organisers. Uh, but it also, before it took power, claimed to be against German capital and like the horrors of German capital and, you know, and sort of, we're going to stand up for the little man, by which they meant the small business owners. But as soon as Hitler got into power... They got rid of all of that, and it just became a party that defended the interests of German big business. Again, that just p- totally proves your point that even when a mass middle class movement claims to be independent or claims to be fighting for the little person who's not in the horrible unions, but also not a big fat cat kind of person, ultimately they have to come down on one side or the other. And obviously the Nazis were always going to come down on the side of the German capitalist class. They were never going to change their mind last minute and, you know, actually say, actually, no, actually, we want to back kind of socialism, because obviously they were clearly against any kind of socialist agenda. The agency of the middle class in this sense, the middle class is defined by their tornness between these class interests, is always therefore hemmed in and is always therefore in in sort of the Bloschian psychological terms a, a very unhappy agency, a very unhappy consciousness, and and that's expressed in in even the sort of spontaneous eruptions of political awareness that you see from them. You know, you look at the Manosphere online or the alt right online, and these are often the children of uh, the sort of petite bourgeoisie, and and it's it's seething resentment is their primary affect. I, I think it's still important, nonetheless, to hold on to the fact that they have that agency. It was some? It was a quality of the work on fascism that our recently departed comrade Neil Faulkner did. Uh, that I think was very apt. That he centered on the agency of the mass movements that fascist leaders would then opportunistically seize, and I think. This quality of agency is something that runs through the entire Marxist analysis of not just the two rival classes, but all the social layers of, of society. A lot of the discussions of the agency of people in uh, 18th Fromier is explicitly around the agency of peasants, not, not one of Marx's three great classes. And so Marx was always interested in this question of where agency is enacted and where it isn't. 
and ultimately the potential for agency he sees everywhere. What's unique about the working class is that this agency can express itself in a universal form through revolution. And it can do so because when they overturn class society without any stakes in that society, they are uniquely situated to be able to create a society which doesn't merely recreate class. And I think that's an absolutely essential point because it gives the potential for a working class revolution to be universal in the way that liberal bourgeois revolutions have only previously promised to be. Yes, and that's the revolutionary potential of the working class, which I know is, you know, there's lots of people nowadays who would say they're on the left and they would agree with socialists in a lot of things, but they're just completely not bothered about any class analysis or, or whether the working class really matters and, and so on. And I think that's that's something that we have to really challenge because if you're talking about trying to move beyond capitalism, the question is how? How are you actually going to do that? And what what is the social force that can make that happen? And you're totally right about the way Marx conceptualised the working class, which is that capitalism is built by the, the capitalists, surprisingly enough, they massively advance the productive forces. You know, they are like society moves from small scale cottage industry production to mass production of goods and services and and so on. You know, massive industrial cities are built. People are thrown off the land uh, as peasants and forced into the city as propertyless workers. So they have to get jobs, often on quite low pay. Uh, and the capitalist class builds this incredibly dynamic system and of, of course that's the important point of the first part of the communist manifesto marx and engels are kind of praising capitalism in a way or like praising what the capitalists have done you know they're saying you know these this this class of people has emerged out of feudalism and they've totally changed everything they have created modernity they have unleashed forces in the economy and in society which are going to completely change the world but obviously there's limits on it and there's limits on it because of the way that capitalism is about a, 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 a small group of people owning everything and controlling everything. And uh, in a sense, they've they've actually built a system which they then can't fulfill the promise of because of the inbuilt nature of supposed sanctity of private property and profits only going to a small group of people. And obviously that's where socialism comes in. Socialism takes what is good about what, what capitalism has done, socialises it so it's for the good of everyone. Uh, and then begins the process of planning the economy so it's not beholden to these unseen market forces which control all of our lives. We begin to consciously plan the economy in a way that we can meet both people's needs and also the needs of actually living on the planet, restoring what socialists call the metabolic rift between people and planet, between humans and nature. And only the working class can do that. Only the working class, because because they work in society and they're the ones that do the work. They're the ones that can take over their workplaces and, you know, not just their factories, because obviously we don't all work in factories. But anywhere where the working class is, they have the power to take that over and begin to democratically plan production according to need. And obviously, there's that's a whole other podcast about how that would work. And, you know, there's lots of complicated questions around that. But again, the middle class is are too diverse and incohate and split and too ideologically confused themselves to be able to do that. That doesn't mean you can't win some of them over to that project. And indeed, you kind of have to. In a lot of countries in the world, the middle class is still quite a big, important social force. You, ha you have to find ways of winning over sections of the middle classes. But they, but they can't be the ones that really 
direct that process. It has to be workers becoming conscious of their of their role. And then, as you said, like the role of the working class is to abolish itself ultimately to create a society in which you know there is no working class because because the working class only exists in opposition to other classes. Which I guess leads mm. us to the point about class being a being a political category, not just a kind of an economic category it's a dynamic rather than just a static thing which i think is where a group of people who are generally called class reductionists i i I don't like giving them the word reductionist because i think reductionism is quite often quite a good thing reductionism is quite a analytically useful thing I, i see them more as flattening class into a static category and and not seeing its relationality and that often you know has the unfortunate effect of seeing class in ways that are transmitted through the social reactionary categories of of existing bourgeois society, often the worst sort of reactionary categories in terms of a, a particular legitimate emblem of the working class, a particular personification of the working class in, in particular nationalist context as white, male, etc., etc. But the main thing that that flattening of class does is, is remove that relationality, which immediately removes the revolutionary potential of class. Because if class is just a category of almost moralistic goodness, these are the good guys, those are the bad guys, then that project of self-abolition no longer really makes sense. Why would you why would you want to abolish the good guys? And and yeah, it's a, a fundamentally quite regressive and, and quite uh, harmful way of, of seeing the class process uh, and, and fundamentally removes class as a political category from the equation. The working class at its best, when it is organised, when it is class conscious, when it is full of hope and uh, a vision for the future, is an incredibly powerful revolutionary force and it overcomes all divisions of nationalism, creed, gender, sexuality, because people are united as workers. I think this is the important point to make, because I think whenever you say workers, I think people still think it's a minority of the population. And I think we have to really make this point very clear. The working class is the majority of the population globally, as well as in most countries. Like, there's obviously some countries where, you know, there's still lots of peasants, or there's still kind of only, like, it's still quite dominated by small scale production. And there's some countries like the Middle East, where you know, there's there's the, the Gulf states where the working class kind of is almost entirely made up of kind of um, imported immigrant workers. Like there's no kind of native working class in those countries, in like in that sense. So there's lots of kind of individual specifics you can look at. But generally speaking, in most countries, the working class is the majority of the population. Even people who consider themselves middle class, most of them ultimately are working class or would become working class if there was an economic crisis where suddenly you know their business was lost they were you know they lost everything or or there's an attack on their wages or or whatever they are then forced into action like alongside the working class or they're driven into a kind of fascistic frenzy and you know they blame foreigners or jewish people or whatever for their problem whereas and obviously again that's a political thing of can the working class movement convince those people that the real problem is the capitalist class and all of the problems that come with capitalism but yes, I think that that idea of the political fight over making the working class the best that it can possibly be is so important because the working class at its best is, is, is all those really important revolutionary things. But the working class at its worst, if it's not really a class, if it's just a, a bunch of exploited people who are going to work, hating their jobs, 
fearful of foreigners driving down wages, taking, you know, like taking their employment, reading right wing newspapers, listening to right wing kind of DJs on, you know, kind of shock shock people or conspiracy theorists and totally not involved in any emancipatory movements of resistance or self-organization. I mean, the working, well, working people in that situation can be terribly reactionary. I'd go so far as to say, I mean, you know, there's nothing obviously like inherently good about being an exploited worker. It actually sucks. It's really rubbish. But obviously what is good about being a worker is if you're organised, you've got the potential to change the world for the better for everyone. But that is a question of your class consciousness and your ability to organise and your courage in terms of fighting. So I think that's a really important kind of subjective question, which is also against these people who are kind of saying, oh, the working class vote Trump, the working, you know, the working class are inherently nationalistic or, or racist or whatever. That sections of the working class at their worst when they're not really part of the working class in a political way. Yeah, I think that this really brings up Marx's categories, his his left Hegelian categories when it came to talking about class and a comrade of ours, Davy Jones, wrote extensively on on this subject and Marx's particular political understanding of class in a way that was quite useful to, I think, both of our perspectives. For Marx, the category of class in itself and then class in and for itself, which I can't fully unpack here. I mean, I certainly couldn't unpack all of the Hegelian philosophical baggage that comes with those terms. Is, is not a category differentiation between atomized workers and politically conscious workers, but really is, is taking place at the level of political consciousness already having happened. So, so Marx makes a subdivision between politically conscious workers, and he isn't particularly interested at all in atomized workers, the sort of worst side of the class. He talks about the worst side of the French peasantry in the context of Bonapartism as being like potatoes in a sack, completely heterogeneous. Uh, in no sense is that sack of potatoes a class of potatoes. It, they're just potatoes. And every indication is that Marx felt that about workers who merely competed against each other, had no sense of their political alignment with each other and their potential as a revolutionary class. But Marx also understood that people do not go from being completely atomized subjects of capitalist society to being immediately revolutionary. And so the category of class in itself is really the emergence of, of workers trying to alter capitalist societies to better take care of their needs. And, and this, is a, this is an incredibly important stage of class consciousness that the working class have to move through in order to achieve becoming a class in and for itself, the class that seeks its own abolition. Which is a really important point that uh, E.P. Thompson makes in The Making of the English Working Class, which is a big book, but I think a book we'd both recommend if anyone hasn't read it yet. It looks at the, the making of English working class kind of late 1700s through to, I think, is it 1840 or 1830 or something? So the very beginning. And E.P. Thompson's great, I think, contribution to that is is also to make a very clear point that what made the English working class was not just the fact that peasants were thrown off their land and um, through the Enclosure Acts, 
forced into cities like Manchester, Birmingham and London and so on. And then forced into the textile industry or, you know, working in kind of like grotty like factories. That was kind of the economic reality of people's lives. What made the English working class was that they began to organise and fight back. The early trade unions, chartist movements, you know, the first ever uh, political organisation that the working class ever set up. Even the Luddites and organisations like that, or I don't know if Luddites were an organisation, but the kind of Luddite movement where people were smashing up looms and some machinery uh, in some parts of the country because they were concerned that it was threatening their way of life. Um, He also says all of the reading groups that were set up back in the time that he's writing about, not many workers were particularly literate, but nevertheless, in a lot of the towns and cities, people would set up discussion groups, reading groups, um, things would be read out to people who were illiterate, and people would be able to talk about the political ideas. And that was also a crucial part of building the working class movement. It's not just the job that you're doing, whether that makes you working class or not, that might make you a worker. Uh, What makes you working class is all of the, yeah, the fight. Are you organised to fight? That's what makes the capitalist class a class really, is that obviously they are a band of warring brothers and sisters, as Karl Marx pointed out, in that they compete with each other, they will try and destroy each other's businesses and, and take over market share and so on. And obviously different groups of capitalists in different nations will go to war with each other over resources, you know, kind of, you know, like general questions like that. So they do fight, but nevertheless, the capitalist class organised together against their workers, And they organise to lobby for their political interests and to ensure that their political regime, capital is one thing, capitalism is the political regime that has been established to defend and secure capital as a mode of production. That's really important. The capitalist class is a class because they are are class conscious. They are aware of their position as exploiters. They're aware of their position in society in terms of having to make profit from workers, squeezing them as much as possible in terms of productivity, making them work longer hours for less pay, all these things. That's what the capitalist class does. They're aware of their position. The problem is workers are often not aware of their position. Like This goes back to the original being woke. Currently at the moment, there's a big thing, oh, you know, woke is, you know, kind of an insult. The whole f- history of socialism is about trying to make workers woke about their condition of life and that they are exploited, but they don't have to be exploited and they don't have to blame the immigrant worker who's allegedly coming to taking their job. They can blame the capitalist for what is going on and they can organise and they can fight and they can even not just get better wages. They could overthrow the capitalist class as a class and build a better society, but obviously that that's a subjective question of class consciousness the question of how class relates to ideology is is really central to to what what you're discussing there and one of the subtler points that marx makes when he describes the ruling ideas of a peer being the ideas of the ruling class of that period which is a material relationship they get to set productive society they get to create society in their own image. And I think sometimes that phrase lends itself to a view, a naive reading, which definitely wasn't intended by Marx, in my view, that what is going on there is that because the ruling class are at the top of society, they just get to sort of propagandize people into a particular way of thinking. And of course, the ruling class do use propaganda all the time. 
as does every social faction in society. And of course, their propaganda has huge material benefits. But really, I think what Marx was getting at is that the very way that people live their daily lives under a capitalist society was then going to reinforce the values of that society. Because if you want to get ahead as a worker, you compete with other workers. And if you want to engage in politics, you do so in bourgeois political forms. Yeah, and it's really infuriating these days because obviously the way that that kind of argument plays out is that people on the the right or the far right even make out that they're this persecuted uh, minority voice, you know, kind of they're the silent majority and all they're doing is saying the same stuff that right-wing newspapers or or right-wing politicians say all the time you know oh um immigration's out of control um uh, islam is a threat to the west is like those are commonly held views that are being put out all the time but then these fascists try and make out that they're in this kind of persecuted minority where these ideas are you know kind of completely suppressed and repressed uh, and that's just not the case but i guess it does raise a criticism about the way that liberal democracy with a capital L has developed to try and have like multiculturalism and, you know, this idea of tolerance in society. Um, But it hasn't been able to fundamentally change the economic basis of capitalism. So what is happening at the moment with the global reactionary movement and the kind of creeping fascism and the rise of the alt-right and so on is, as you said, they are just repeating the, the so-called common sense reality of a life that is kind of brutal, driven by competition, driven by, you know, a world which is divided up into nations and, and, and you know, people people struggling um, often to make ends meet. And they, they obviously have a reactionary program around that. But what they're arguing against is the liberal democratic kind of political edifice. Like, oh, you're not allowed to say that kind of thing. Oh, it's political correctness or all that. And obviously now it's the war on woke. And that's because there has been advances made in terms of, yeah, I mean, you, you, like you're not allowed to walk around in public being racist anymore, or you know, like you're not allowed to be racist at work, or like like overtly sexist. Um, those are wins that have been made, but nevertheless, society is still built in such a way that those ideas exist and will continue to exist because they are embedded in the racial, sexist nature of capitalism. Kind of the liberals and liberal democracy don't have a way of dealing with that because they agree with that economic system you know they um obviously they want to regulate it or reform it a little bit but you know they don't really want to overthrow it you know the real task is to really think about how we can build that kind of very energetic dynamic confident movement which feels like it's got the future in its bones you know feels like it could actually change things and win and therefore you know we can't give into passivity we can't give into pessimism we can't give in to this idea that, oh, actually, maybe we've already reached the tipping point and now it's kind of the end of the world. Because like I think as soon as we absorb that into our outlook, I mean, then it does really become hopeless. Um, then there is no no opportunities to really change things, whereas there's still huge opportunities to change things. It all depends on whether a socialist revolutionary movement can be built of any size which is global and extends so far into the working class um, and progressive forces in society that it can they can actually overthrow capitalism thanks for listening if you have any comments or ideas we would love to hear from you write to us at acr radio at anti-capitalist resistance.org that's 
acradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms.